happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Hey, girlfriends. It's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week, I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the planet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? Turns out, that story was way bigger than just an optical illusion. It's a cautionary tale about the decline of clickbait sites, the rise of algorithms and internet polarization, and the end of fun on the internet. Seriously, and that's just one story. We're giving every character their 16th minute. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. On the Bechdel cast, the questions asked if movies have women in them. Are all their discussions just boyfriends and husbands, or do they have individualism? The patriarchy's effing vast. Start changing it with the Bechdel cast. Jamie, it's so yeah. hot in here. Can you please turn the fan on in this recording studio? No, it it's gets just... it gets the podcast dusty. <laughs> can't can't turn on the fan. The podcast will be covered oh. in dust. It'll be a catastrophe for us. Sorry. Well, fine. I'll just take off all my clothes then. All right, that's not my business. I guess yeah. I'll do the same. Cool. I'll do the same. Yeah, that sounds great, actually. The only person that's going to piss off is mommy. <laughs> <laughs> mommy podcast. <laughs> cool. Well, I'm, I'm glad we sorted that out. Yeah, that, that resolved very cleanly. <laughs> <laughs> um, welcome to the Bechtel cast. My name is Caitlin Durante. My name is Jamie Loftus. And this is our podcast where we take a look at your favorite movies using an intersectional feminist lens using the Bechdel test as a jumping off point for discussion. Which of course is a media metric created by queer cartoonist Alison Bechdel, sometimes called the Bechdel-Wallace test, whereby two people of a marginalized gender have to have names, they have to speak to each other, and their conversation has to be about something other than a man. Mm -hmm. And ideally for our sake, it is a meaningful, substantial conversation and not just like a, hey, what? Um, no, keep this going. This feels, <laughs> this sounds good. This feels good. Um, how's your soup? And then the other person says, I'm not listening to you. Go away. <laughs> and then <laughs> yeah. the first character disappears forever. And they're like, Poof, wait, gone. my name is Crystal. <laughs> as they're leaving but it's too late we didn't hear it on screen that's an example of something that is great writing but not Mm. great to pass it look anyways it's a flawed metric (laughs) because that was an amazing scene we just did i'm gonna base an entire screenplay around it yeah (laughs) it's called it's gonna be called a an extremely soupy movie an (laughs) extreme No, no, it's not. And yes, it is. I can't engage with this joke any further. I can't. Oh, 
I draw the line. Look, look, in the case of today's episode, uh-huh. Bechtel test, not a problem. Let's not, just say that right now. No problem at all. Yeah. Yes. And so I said, let's let's get to it. Let's get our incredible returning Bechtel cast guest into the room. Let's get her in the mix. We simply must. She's a comedian, podcaster, creator, and host of Mere Juanera, a podcast for potheads. And you remember her from our episode on Selena. It's Mala Munoz. Welcome hey, everyone. Back. Thank you for having me. It feels great to be back. It's our pleasure. And it is also mine. We brought you back in 1000 degree heat. It's, you know what? I, there's literally nothing else I would rather be doing than podcasting about this film in a heat wave. It's apt. It makes sense. Yeah. I feel like I'm in the movie. Mm-hmm. It's true. We were joking about how by the end of the episode, we will all be taking our clothes off. Hopefully. Because of the heat. Look, PR nightmare. Maybe. Will HR get involved? <laughs> Maybe. Possibly. Am I open to it? Yes. Yeah. It's so fucking hot today. <laughs> it is 100 or like 97 degrees in where I'm at in LA right now. Unpleasant. But you know what's not unpleasant? The movie the we're movie. discussing today. <laughs> oh my gosh. Very fun watch. Very enjoyable. <laughs> Real women have curves. Yes. Mala, what's your relationship, your history with this film? You know, I feel like my relationship with the film starts with my relationship with America Ferreira because she was like a Disney Channel mm-hmm. darling. She was in Gotta Kick It Up yeah. about the Latina dance team. And that's where like... I was born in 92. That's where I was first introduced to America Ferrera. Mm-hmm. So when Real Women Have Curves came out, it was like, oh, this is a recognizable actress who we love. And she had this like incredible like role. And I don't know if that's a movie that a lot of people have seen, but in like little Latina circles, Gotta Kick It Up, Real Women Have Curves, super mm-hmm. just iconic like staples of our media diet. Nice. Yeah. So did you see Real Women Have Curves? Like right when it came out? You know, so 2002, I don't remember where I was or where Mm. I saw it. I just remember that like it was like this standout movie to me because of of Lupe Ontiveros is in it. George Mm -hmm. Lopez is in it. America Frere is in it. And there are others throughout Mm -hmm. the film who are iconic actors and actresses. But I remember thinking like, oh, my God, like this little movie is like has all these recognizable faces that I've seen in all these other projects. Like, you know, Lupe Ontiveros played Yolanda Salvador in the Selena biopic. Yeah. So, so for that reason, it was like, wow, like I've seen these faces in all these other projects, Disney Channel, Selena, George Lopez, and now they're Mm -hmm. all here in this one movie. Like that's fucking sick. What a great cast. And like amazing performances across the board. Mm -hmm. And learning about the, I mean, we'll get into it, but like learning about the production history of this movie is like, very frustrating and very fascinating and i just like can't wait to get into it truly mm-hmm. agreed jamie what is your relationship with this movie i had kind of a similar journey i i uh, every decom that came out was my favorite movie uh and so gotta <laughs> kick it up was i feel like a significant one that was like kind of in like the upper pantheon of decoms i really really loved it that was definitely how i even though i think that technically real women have curves was made before gotta kick it up definitely learned about america ferrera and like fell in love with her through gotta kick it up 
And I don't remember, I know I saw real women have curves when I was a kid. I was trying to sort out in my head the sequence of events of like, I might've seen like, gotta kick it up, sisterhood of the traveling pants, and mm. then seen real women have curves to be like, we have to get into vintage America Ferrera. Right. <laughs> but I definitely saw it when I was in like either late middle school, early high school, really, really loved it. Um, have revisited it a couple times over the years, but I hadn't seen it in a really long time and definitely not since I had moved to LA. Mm. And so it was like such a delight to like revisit. I really love this movie and yeah, getting to learn more about the, the film and kind of the, the ad, like, I feel like this is such a cool example of like adapting something into a movie well, Mm -hmm. which is so often done badly or sloppily or lazily or whatever but like this Mm -hmm. is just like a beautiful adaptation and i'm so excited to talk about it yeah caitlin what's your history with real women have curves i saw this movie in high school because it came out in 2002 i think i would have seen it in like 2003 or 4 when i was about honest characters age in the movie yeah yeah. because i think if my memory serves me correctly my mom had heard about this movie and was like, I heard it's really good. Roger Ebert gave it three and a half stars. Let's watch it. Let's rent it from the video store. <laughs> the ultimate yardstick. This is a very like, I feel like I probably watched this with my mom. It's a very mother, like there's not a lot mm-hmm. of mother daughter movies. Yeah. I mean, and the relationship will get there, but. And it would have required someone, we had to have the DVD of this film to watch it. So I feel like I went mm-hmm. to Blockbuster right. or someone recommended it. And because and, I don't remember seeing it in the movie theaters or on TV. Like, I feel like it was a DVD situation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that's my recollection as well. Gosh, like, yeah, like the, the later Blockbuster years. What a beautiful, what a beautiful time. In its twilight. Does anyone remember the last DVD they got from Blockbuster? Wow. I feel like that's a fun question. My hometown was so small that we didn't even have a Blockbuster. (gasps) Wow. We had to go to just like the local video rental store, which I don't even remember what it was called now. It might have just been called like Video Store. (laughs) The Video Store. (laughs) Amazing. Um, Anyway, so yeah, I saw it in high school as a teenager and... I haven't watched it since then, I don't think. But there were two scenes in particular that are just like seared into my memory. You know, when you watch a movie that you and then you you don't see it for years, but there are just like little moments that you will never forget. And that have just been like logged into your memory bank forever. Mm -hmm. The scene where America Ferreira is like admiring her body she like pulls her robe open and is like looking at herself in the mirror and then her mom comes in and she Mm -hmm. like immediately knows that she's lost her virginity that like was completely seared into my memory and then the like climactic scene at the end when all the women at the dress factory are taking their clothes off and comparing bodies and Anna's mom is horrified like what a great scene I will never forget that. The other scene that I I did not remember the, the her mom being like you lost your virginity and being right. I was like, "Oh, I'm gl- I'm kind of glad that didn't <laughs> stick with me." I was like, "Oh, how did she know that?" Uh yeah. But I think it was seared into my memory because I was so afraid that that would happen to me <laughs> with my mom. 
Oh, right. My like you can tell, like, I do I look different? And in that scene, too, she opens with like she uses such strong language with Anna, like throughout the movie. One of the things that like really sticks out to me is like the, the vocabulary that Carmen, that Anna's mother uses. So like immediately in that scene, mm-hmm. she's like, you tramp. Yeah. And then she tells her, like, not only are you fat, you're a puta, you know, yeah. very uh, mm-hmm. hard language that just really punctuates, like, every aspect of the scene. Yeah, totally. One of the scenes that stuck with me the hardest on this viewing was um, the scene where it's, like, Anna's first day working at the factory and her mom is body shaming her. And then the second a- another person enters the room, she's all of a sudden nice and you're like, Oh no, I know that dynamic. Like that's so that's <laughs> I, I don't know how many times I've like seen that like on screen, like depicted in a very straightforward way of like, well, yeah, like, you know, I can be a total asshole to you when no one's around, but then the second there's a third party, my demeanor completely changes. And you're like, Yeah, that's I've saw that a ton growing up like it's just oof. Yeah. Oof. yeah Anna's mom has this way of just like raining on her parade like at every possible moment like even from the opening scene of them because like that scene where she's like talking bad to Anna like Anna's like admiring a dress on one of the mannequins and she's just looking at it mm-hmm. and how pretty it is and her mother immediately comes in with you can't fit into that. Like, you're way too fat. There's no way there's enough fabric yeah. to cover you. Like, look at your chichis. They're so huge. And then in walks Norma. And even the very first scene of the movie, Anna's on her way to school, her last mm-hmm. day of high school, and her mom is sick in bed and asking her to stay home to make breakfast for the men. You know, she's just like a party pooper throughout the whole film. That scene, that scene, like, at the factory, like, truly, I was like, oh, my God, she was literally just standing there. <laughs> and, like, yeah. it turned into an attack. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. Yeah. We will unpack that. Yes. Relationship soon. Yes. It's wild because she's so likable. She's so lovable, the mom. Even when she's saying all these horrible things, like, yeah. she's still kind of funny when she's saying them. And, like, the tension between the two of them is, like, I don't know. There's something still endearing about her, even as she infuriates you, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. I feel like a lot of that is just, like, Lupe Antivero's performance as well. Like, her, yeah. Oh, man. Across the board, the, like, every performance in this movie is so good and, like, layered and full of heart. And, I mean, the fact that, like, America Ferrera was 15 when she started in this movie and, like, the whole range of... Mm-hmm. Like, she's just so fucking talented. It is such a good movie. I am sad I, like, Mm -hmm. slept on it for all of those years in between, like, when I first saw it and now. You're back, baby. I'm back, baby. Um, Shall I do the recap? Let's do it. Okay. So, we meet Ana Garcia, played by America Ferreira. She's a teenager who is about to finish high school in Los Angeles. Ever heard of it? We meet her family, her sister Estella, played by Ingrid, and I'm not sure how to pronounce her last name, Oliu. Um, her dad, Raul, played by Jorge Cervera Jr., her grandfather, her like abuelito, and then her mom, Carmen, played by Lupe Antiveros, who 
Anna has a loving but difficult relationship with, as we've hinted at and will discuss further. Mm-hmm. Carmen, we will learn, gets on Anna's case about a lot of different things and has certain pretty rigid expectations for Anna. And and for Estella. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Anna heads to her last day of high school. Uh, she and her family live in, I think, East L.A.? Yeah, Boyle Heights. Boyle Heights. Mm-hmm. Right, because that was like very based on the source material. This was adapted from a play. I know we'll talk about this, but a mm-hmm. play by Josefina Lopez, who writes about Boyle Heights a ton. Like that is very much her background in her community. And mm-hmm. yeah. Yep. But Anna takes several city buses to get to school in Beverly Hills. Um, her teacher, Mr. Guzman, played by George Lopez, asks her about her college applications but she says she's not going to college because her family cannot afford it. Uh, he reminds her that there are scholarships, grants, financial aid, mm-hmm. but she's like, I don't know. Not that she doesn't want to. It's just, she knows it's going to be, be like an issue within the family. Exactly. Yeah. Um, her family throws a little congrats on graduating high school celebration we also see Anna quit her job at a fast food joint, which upsets her mom. But it's a fun scene to watch her quit. I loved watching <laughs> yeah. her quit. That was very fun. And I actually think that the cashier is Josefina Lopez, the one who hands oh, her okay. the check. She is in the movie as a character named Veronica, but I was like, who's Veronica? I couldn't remember exactly. That's so cool. All right. That's I great. That's- and she killed it. She was so great in yeah. that one scene. <laughs> She's keeping Anna's check in her bra, and Anna's like, that's sick. <laughs> that, uh, now I like that scene even more. I was so just good. like, whoever mm-hmm. that character actor was, was really funny. Yeah. Holy shit. Oh, that's great. And now that I'm like looking at her picture again, I'm like, oh, yeah, that totally was her. That's her. Yep. Oh, amazing. So Anna quits her job, which upsets her mom, who suggests she work at the clothing factory that her sister Estella runs, something that neither... Anna nor Estella really want Mm -hmm. but Anna needs to learn needs to earn money to help the family and Estella is behind on her work orders so Mm -hmm. she will go to work at the factory Uh, Mr. Guzman pays Anna a visit to keep encouraging her to submit college applications Mm -hmm. Uh, but her family and her mom especially are against Anna going to college right now because she needs to work and help the family Mm. Uh, the next day, Anna and her sister and mom go to Estella's clothing factory, where they assemble dresses to be sold at Bloomingdale's for $600, even though the manufacturer only pays them $18 per dress to assemble each dress. Mm-hmm. And Anna points out how unfair this is, how their labor is being exploited. Also, I think probably at the time that would have been the first time I'd heard that issue discussed in a movie like mm-hmm. at all for sure yeah there's a an interesting class discussion around yeah. this movie for sure and then we meet the other women who work at the factory such as pancha norma and rosalie also <laughs> anna's mom carmen body shames anna several times and tends to comment on most people's weight yeah that's just kind of a habit of hers yeah, because there is that scene where, I mean, the scene we were just talking about where she 
is verbally abusive towards her daughter. Someone mm. like her employees start to arrive and then she's nice to them. But then she also turns on her employees pretty quickly and starts mm-hmm. criticizing them as well. And yeah. you're like, oh, I guess this is just her personality. Oh, everybody gets it. Yeah. 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 She, she gives it to everybody. Everyone gets a slice. <laughs> yeah. You get a polite hello and then uh, <laughs> things take a turn. Uh-huh. Yep. So then Anna gives her filled out college applications to Mr. Guzman, but he points out that she's missing a personal statement and that she needs to write one as soon as possible. Mm. Then Anna runs into her classmate, Jimmy, who seems to like her. He's got a little crush and he gives Anna his phone number. Um, Back at the factory, Estella is struggling to keep up with the work order, especially after several of her workers unexpectedly leave to move to Mexico. Mm -hmm. Then we get a scene where Carmen tells Anna a secret that Carmen thinks she's pregnant, but Anna is like, Mom, that's pretty unlikely. (laughs) Probably not what's happening. For all the shit that Anna has to put up with, I love that she's always very quick to be like enough (laughs) like stop Mm -hmm. no she advocates for herself exceptionally well yeah yeah and i love her for it even in situations where you can tell like i don't know or where it felt to me like you could tell she's like i'm not gonna win this battle but i have to say this like Mm -hmm. you're not pregnant mom so then anna goes with estella to speak to mrs glass who is the owner of the dress manufacturing company to ask for an advance so they can pay the bills and keep the lights running at the factory. Mm. But Mrs. Glass still denies them an advance. So then Anna goes to her dad for a loan. Uh, Meanwhile, Anna goes out on a date with that kid, Jimmy. They have a nice time. He's got big that kid, Jimmy energy too. (laughs) Like, I was like, who is this? Elijah Wood ass looking kid. Yeah, Elijah Wood wasn't available slash he's too old. <laughs> too old. This kid, that kid Jimmy, I, he was only in movies for a couple years and then he, who knows, he tapped out mm. and he's done. Yeah. I liked his character though. He, uh, you know, he said some things that made me go, uh, but uh, overall. <laughs> I would agree with that. He was a, he seemed like a sweet kid. He's, he's very like her first nice white boyfriend you know it's mm-hmm. it's an experience it's a type it's oh i had a nice white boyfriend like back home like <laughs> and that's him <laughs> right right yeah so she goes out with jimmy anna then turns in her personal statement to mr guzman we see another day at work it's hard it's hot Anna admires the dresses she steams at the factory and is sad to remember that they're not for her. Mm-hmm. But then Estella surprises Anna with a dress that she made especially for Anna in a very sweet moment. I love that part. And it is a beautiful dress, too. Mm-hmm. And I, I always wish there was like a dress reveal moment, like an occasion for her yeah. to wear that dress. I, I was know. like, is there a cut scene? Because it felt like... Chekhov's dress. <laughs> exactly. Where is the dress? Where is she wearing it? Yeah. I, I hope she wore it at like some, I don't know, some New York event. Yeah. She goes to to a mixer at Columbia. Yeah. Yeah. She's like, I just wore a gown to orientation. <laughs> is that normal? Can you do that? <laughs> <laughs> then Mr. Uh. Guzman stops by to let Anna know that she's been accepted to Columbia University with a full scholarship 
But her parents are still like, "Mm, now is not the right time for Anna to go to college, Mm. uh, which is extremely disappointing to Anna. She then goes out with Jimmy again. They have sex. Her mom senses that she has lost her virginity. And it, like we were saying earlier, she calls Anna a tramp and a puta. And one of the biggest mysteries of the movie, how did she know? How did she know? Was it because America Ferrer was like looking in the mirror being like, go me? Like, how I, honestly, did she know? Yeah. yeah. My guess is that she was just like, confidently admiring her body body. for the first time ever yeah right so she's like i better i better put an end to this confidence my daughter's feeling (laughs) that was more (laughs) the spidey sense going off was i think my daughter's having Mm -hmm. a good feeling it's like her favorite refrain she's always like a mother knows Mm -hmm. a woman knows Mm -hmm. she just knew and this time she was right she turns out to not (laughs) be right about being (laughs) pregnant because yeah. she goes to the doctor. Take a hundred shots and you're, you're going to make one eventually. <laughs> True. The reason that Carmen has missed several periods in a row is a bit, is because she is going through menopause, not because she is pregnant. Mm. So then we see another day at the dress factory. It's a particularly hot day and Estella won't turn on the fan because it blows dust on the dresses. So Anna takes off her shirt and her mom freaks out. But Anna is like, what's the big deal? We're all women here. We all have the same parts. And then all of the other women at the factory take their clothes off. They compare bodies. They compare cellulite and stretch marks. And they're like, we're beautiful. We're awesome. Mm -hmm. But Carmen is looking on in horror. And Anna is just like, this is who we are, mom. Real women. Mm -hmm. And Carmen storms out while the other ladies continue working and dancing and celebrating themselves and their bodies. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in talking about the shooting situation around that scene. There's, mm. uh, there's a lot to talk about there, too. Ooh, I'm interested to learn more. Mm. And then, finally, Anna heads off to Columbia University. Uh, she tries to say goodbye to Carmen and to get her mom's blessing, but Carmen refuses. So her dad and grandpa take Anna to the airport, and then we see Anna walking down the streets of New York City. Ever Ever heard of it? it. And that's how the movie ends. So let's take a quick break, and then we will come back to discuss. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride in the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes 3 extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do 
find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized and already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. I, I feel like a, a little bit of context for how this movie came to be is a, is a good place to start before we get into the characters. Mm-hmm. So this, as we've sort of hinted at already, this is a movie that is based on a play by Josefina Lopez. Um, Her background is she was born in Mexico and then uh, immigrated to Los Angeles. A lot of her work surrounds that experience and sort of reflections of her experience. Um, This play is very much a part of that. She started writing, I reading about her career, I'd never like gone down this Wikipedia hole and she's like so fucking cool. She wrote her first play in high school while the rest of us were doing god knows what Mm -hmm. she was at work and she wrote a play called simply maria or the american dream she then went on to write real women have curves the play was very well regarded it was very successful it's my understanding is it's pretty close to what happens in the movie because she um co-writes the screenplay and is apparently one of my favorite characters i just learned um (laughs) but Anyways, Real Women Have Curves is her biggest hit so far, and people want to adapt it in one way or another. Originally, and I didn't know any of this before reading this kind of retrospective piece. So at the time, uh, it was going to be adapted for television by Norman Lear, who is 
first of all, 100 years old and still alive, which you got to hand it to him. Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> but he had a reputation in Hollywood for being one of the only producers who championed diverse stories for television. And so mm. most diverse families you saw on television in the 70s, 80s, and 90s into the 2000s, he's still working, mm-hmm. were a result of his champion. He's, he is a white producer uh, who was known for championing women's stories and diverse stories. So he seemed to Josefina Lopez to be kind of a, a natural fit for um, getting this project adapted into television. Mm. However, he did he did one day at a, a time, right? Like the, he did, the, yeah. the more recent adaptation. Yeah. Yeah. And the first one was also him. Right. And he did. I'm trying to I was like, God, older TV is truly not my strength. Mm, but let me get same. let me get a, a few of his hits on the board. Uh, Samford and Son was his. Oh, One wow. Day at a Time, The Jeffersons, Good Times, Maud, uh, one of my favorite shows ever, Mary Hartman, Mary Hartman. Like he ha- he did he could, he got stories on TV that no one else was trying to. Very cool. So Josefina Lopez was excited that he wanted to help adapt it, but even with the Norman Lear co-sign, they could not sell Real Women Have Curves as a TV series to networks. Networks said it was not relatable a story enough, which mm-hmm. we know is absolute horseshit. Horseshit, but very typical of Hollywood. Of TV, yeah, to this day. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Josefina Lopez is discouraged. She's like, one of the biggest TV producers in the world can't get this produced. Who's going to? There's a second wind with this project as a uh, film script. So she meets a writer named George Levu, which is what a what a fun name. Mm-hmm. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I just like to say it. George Levu. She cu- she meets Levu and uh, they they decide they decide to um, collaborate on a screenplay together and finally they find an executive who wants to fund the project and it's a uh, i have a quote here um so this project was funded by hbo which i don't think i knew not that it matters i just didn't know it was an hbo movie Mm. so josefina lopez says this i believe in 2017 in this retrospective HBO's Maud Nadler had the power to say yes. It came down to a female executive saying women's stories matter. Stories about mothers and daughters are important to me because I love my mother. And I remember asking Maud after we made the film why she said yes. She said, because I love my mother. Wow. It took a woman in a position of power to find value in the story. Mm-hmm. Which is, I thought, I don't know, that was like, ooh. That's really nice. Oh. Yeah. yeah. And none of those men love their mothers. They all hate their mothers. I know. <laughs> I love my mother. Not enough to fund a story a Every woman executive. wrote. Let's not go. Let's not go. Don't get carried away. Look, look. Not I respect that much. women to a point. Very like, as the father of a daughter energy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes. Uh, so the project gets funded. Uh, they find uh, director Patricia Cardoso, who I believe is raised in Colombia. Mm-hmm. She signs on for the project. Lavu and Lopez become the hottest writing team in Hollywood. <laughs> 
the the movies. Pro- oh, uh, and then another huge thing that happens is George Lopez signs on as a co-producer, which also was like a big hand in big um, getting this movie in front of people. Nice. It goes to Sundance, and the rest is history. But it was a huge. I mean, I think we see this a lot of times in projects that are not centered around the white experience and the white male experience like it mm-hmm. was a huge uphill battle to get this project made even though it was already like a proven successful entity through the play right right and it really has aged so well i was watching it yeah. this morning and like the jokes land the writing feels like still very like charming and fresh and it's just a fun watch and like nothing in that movie is standing out in a bad cringy way unless it's supposed to be you know it's Mm -hmm. just like so well written and you know it's like yeah the work speaks for itself it's funny and like it's just like i don't know this movie has so much going for it it's so charming sorry there's like a trash removal truck right outside my window making loud noises my air conditioner's on because it's eight million degrees my sorry fire, for all the noise a fire but... truck just passed my house and i smell fire oh no <laughs> there's a lot going on oh god i hope, I hope everyone is okay ah uh, okay Let's go back to talking about the movie that takes place in L.A. around, like, literally this exact time of year. Yeah, Uh, during a heat wave in the summer. The sweltering heat. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Uh, But, yeah, this movie does age so well. And we've talked about there's, like, a, a span of time for movies. And, honestly, it ranges for a long, quite a long time. But... You know, if you're from a certain generation, especially the movies of like the late 90s, early 2000s, like if that's when you're coming of age mm-hmm. and those are like the movies and the media that you were like most exposed to, which is the case for me, at least that era was just such a crapshoot for for most media because it was like yeah. just steeped in sexism racism homophobia transphobia ableism like you name it marginalized communities were punched down to in media so it's just so refreshing to see a movie that's 20 years old from the early 2000s to be a movie that is like so i mean feminist masterpiece number one Mm -hmm. has so many strong impactful messages the exact type of thing that like young people need to see to like be influenced in the right direction Mm. because it has such strong themes and messaging about like body positivity sex positivity it showcases a a complicated relationship between a mother and daughter but one that's that's very authentic and Mm. and familiar to a lot of people so it's just like it's doing so much and class commentary mm -hmm. there's yeah something that honestly like didn't even didn't connect for me until I saw it like explicitly kind of said by the creators of the movie because I didn't have my proper 2002 goggles on, I guess, (laughs) was just showing Boyle Heights as the community that it is versus how East LA and Latin people from LA were shown in media at this time that like this movie had a huge hand in, Mm -hmm. you know, offering a counter to the really prejudiced, like overly simplistic narrative that was being shown in everything else, um, Mm -hmm. which is like such a big part of, Josefina Lopez's work. I don't know. It's awesome. Mm -hmm. It's very wholesome. It is. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. And like, yeah, just think about all the movies that you see that are like set in LA about 
rich white people living in wealthy neighborhoods, living in huge houses that basically just ignores huge swaths of the population of LA. Yeah. There's a, a huge Latinx community mm-hmm. that is not often represented in movies uh, here in LA and often not represented favorably if it is represented at all. Yeah, I was just going to say that Real Women Have Curves is markedly youthful and feminine when compared to other LA Chicano Mexi- Mexican American films like literally the the other movies that we can compare it to in the same sort of genre or or cultural space is like blood in blood out American me mm-hmm. and then you know me familia has more of a family dynamic at the beginning but these films and then zoot suit mm-hmm. and these are all iconic films zoot suit mm-hmm. is a musical you know it's a piece of theater but all of these films also have a lot of violence in them there's a lot of trauma mm-hmm. there's prison and gangs mm-hmm. and the ethos is very masculine and it's very much like a lot of men on screen and what they're going through in their lives. And then you have real women have curves with like, I was on Josefina Lopez on her website and uh, reading about her, her like about me, which seems like she wrote it, which is awesome. And she's talking about how she started writing this play when she was 18. It's so You know, cool. and how like, yeah. And how the sensibilities of an 18 year old girl have everything to do with why the film is everything that it is and it's it it's I think it feels so fresh because it is because like such a young person wrote it mm-hmm. and it feels very like like fresh too because it doesn't look or feel like steeped in super trendy stuff of the time like it doesn't really look like a 2000s film I guess like mm-hmm. it's not super stylized like their wardrobe or their makeup or their hair or the music, you know, it's like, yeah, very wholesome. And like a Zoomer today who like goes thrifting might end up pulling some of the outfits that America Ferreira is wearing in Real Women Have Curves, you know, like it it just feels very like, yeah, it feels like young. I was thinking that so much of it has come back around. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, I have a quote from uh, Mr. LeVu himself about I just want to say his name. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like speaking to, you know, d- like drew attention to the fact like this is based on Josefina's experience. So much is told through the soft, warm, humorous tone of her experience. Hopefully that's what you're seeing when you see the city as different from the gangs and the grittiness of other films from this time. Josefina wanted to show the city as a vibrant place where women can have full lives and grow. And I feel like this movie pulls that off. A million percent. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, yeah. I want to share a, a quote from the director um, Patricia or Patricia Cardoso says, "Quote: I wanted to show a part of Los Angeles we don't usually see in a beautiful way, not a seedy neighborhood filled with stereotypes of East LA. It was important to expand the concept of beauty for women, but also for the city and the neighborhoods." Mm-hmm. Unquote. So it's like. And this vision from the director, from the writer, all comes through very clearly in very satisfying ways. Um, I had one other uh, behind the scenes thing I wanted to, and I know this will, will this will come in and out for the rest of the episode, but I was happy that this article, like, as I was so curious of like the sequence of America Ferrera lore. So I guess that she had already shot Gotta Kick It Up before she shot Real Women Have Curves. 
and I just like I love this story. It was like when she got her check from Gotta Kick It Up, she got a car and wanted to go to drama camp. And like those are that's what she used her money Aww. for. I was like, she's so great. Wow. They wanted her to audition for this movie. She was like, well, yeah. I'm going to drama camp. So if you're still casting when I'm done at drama camp, like hit me up basically and then and look hell yeah like listening to her talk about that in her 30s and she was like that was a bold move for a 17 year old to do but uh <laughs> fortunately they still wanted me to be in the movie so i i love america for so much i uh was curious about like what scenes in this retrospective they would talk about and there was a fair amount of discussion around I feel like the scene that people remember best from this movie when they're in the factory at the end and they take their clothes off and they talk about their bodies and it's like this really celebratory cool moment um so I guess America Ferrera was yeah I said she was 15 I was wrong she was 17 when this movie was being shot mm. but still it's still she's still a kid mm -hmm. and I guess that on the day that this was being shot she decided that she didn't want to take her pants off so this was sort of mm. this was hashed by a, a few people I mean and it seems like you know 15 years later she's fine everyone's relationship is fine but at the time so the scene had been blocked they were ready to shoot it I think prior to the scene being shot America Ferrero said okay that's okay I'll do that but I just wanted to share a few quotes from her because kids acting is like such a such a mire and I mm -hmm. she was uncomfortable during that scene so right she says I was 17 years old and it was only my second job I'd never had to take off my clothes in front of a 200 person crew most of them men I'm sure mm. I was incredibly intimidated by that I remember wearing a robe between takes and as the day went on it was too much of a hassle to get the robe on and off so I was like whatever I'll stand here without the robe but basically the, the crew tells this story about how she decided she wasn't comfortable taking her pants off. And then I believe the director um, faked getting a phone call from an HBO executive. She was like, you know, well, you know, this is a really important part of the script. We need you to do this. And America Ferrera was like, I'm not comfortable with that. I don't want to do it anymore. And she's like, well, let me call HBO. The director goes outside, fakes a call so this is from George Lavu is recapping this okay so no sorry this is George Lavu making the call Lavu canceled now okay <gasps> George Lavu harsh turn in his narrative I don't like him anymore yeah not Lavu not it's always it's always Lavu though isn't it the, <laughs> so Lavu says I made an excuse. I said, let me call Colin Callender, who was the head of HBO Films at the time. I said, let me see what he wants. So I took my phone outside and I pretended to call Colin. <gasps> I came back and said, Colin said, you have to do it. And she said, okay, we'll do it. I didn't know what we were going to do. I couldn't imagine the movie without that scene. Hopefully they're happy it happened that way. Then Patricia Cardoso jumps on this train and says America was mad at me the whole day it took two days to shoot that scene and she was so mad she wouldn't even look me in the eyes the next day she came running to me and said you know now I understand why it was important for the character to take off her pants can we please shoot the scene again I said no you did it perfectly America Ferreira now hmm. in her 30s this is in 2017 uh, kind of puts a pin on this discussion that I was like 
I'm mad at them personally, but she says, Mm -hmm. I clearly see how this film empowered others to feel seen, liberated, and beautiful, but I was a child playing everything but a typical child. More than saying, oh, that's my body, people watched it and said, oh, yes, that's how my mom responds to my body. That's how my culture responds to my body. That's how the world responds to my body. For me, being a young woman going through my own journey with my body, having seen and talked having it seen and talked about and projected upon by people watching this movie, if anything, sort of stunned me for a while because that in and of itself sent a strong message about how I should feel about my body. And it was a much longer journey for me to get to a place where I felt empowered about my body, the way that film helped others feel. Dang. So I mean, levels. The, it's levels for sure. It's complex. I mean, personally, I'm like, okay, production wise, I don't think that that was a very, that was like a, dishonest and irresponsible way to handle that yeah mm-hmm. especially with someone who's a m- underage who's a minor right right I exactly. mean she's 17 in this situation and like that was the one production thing that I learned that didn't sit super well because it's like yeah this like she's an incredible performer she's but it's I mean a teenager talking about their body on screen is so I can't imagine how excruciatingly difficult that oh, yeah. must have been. Mm-hmm. And so to have like pressure put on top of her, like you have to do this, like that sucks. Yeah. It's it's like this period of your life where IRL teenagers are still wearing T-shirts in the swimming pool and like not right. showing their bodies to anybody, mm-hmm. like if they feel uncomfortable. And I think what's interesting too is like America Ferreira, like in that quote, nowhere is she saying that she didn't like her body or she felt fat or she felt not proud of her body or uncomfortable in her body. You know what I mean? It's like Mm -hmm. there's all these projections and it has so much to do with like, of course, it's literally the the plot and it's the movie and Mm -hmm. it's the character and it's the storyline. So that's all baked in there. Like she's cast in this role because the main character, Ana, is a gordita. She's chubby. So she's got to look the part, you know? And then I Mm. think about the fact that, like, all the levels, right? Because that script was written by somebody, Josefina, who probably experienced this exact same, like, type of body shaming that goes on in our families. And then those Mm. actresses, being Latinas, probably have all experienced something similar in their own lives. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that in their particular families or lives that just because we have this awareness in the script and in the movie that you know, uh, everybody is beautiful and that fat is beautiful, mm-hmm. that those actresses, when they go home, their families are not necessarily on board. Like that script is probably still there, you know, like sure. that is still yeah. happening in the outside world. Yeah. You know, so it's just it's, I just think about the compounded levels of it all in a in a movie like this. Right. Yeah. And the, you hear about stories where like a scene like this is in the script and mm-hmm. it calls for nudity partial nudity you know people wearing underwear and it didn't feel like inappropriate or exploitative but i also not like, at all no can totally understand why a 17 year old actor when the moment comes to take your clothes off in front of 200 people no matter well, how so safe what, you are it's like that's you can feel amazing about your body and be uncomfortable with that like that's yeah so that's what I was going to say. You hear stories about like some productions being like, okay, I know this is going to be a potentially very uncomfortable scene for the actors. So we're going to take a bunch of precautions to make it as comfortable as possible. And that it ranges from like 
hiring like choreo if it's like a sex scene like a sex choreographer will basically be hired or like there will be like social workers or other kind of like mental health professionals on set or like nearby to consult with if the actors need like to consult with somebody or talk to someone there will be a reduced crew where like normally the crew might be 200 people Mm. but on a shoot day like that you scale it way back i've heard of um like let's say the dp is a man but they will like temporarily hire a woman i mean they could have just hired a woman anyway but they they did say that like it it wasn't actually 200 people (laughs) it was Uh that was like uh, i think america Ferrera was like um what is hyperbolizing (laughs) hyperbolic yeah i went to school i swear uh (laughs) uh, so per levu um there were like dividers up so that not every member of the crew had access to the shooting of this scene Mm -hmm. so i i don't have the number count but but it was like america decided she didn't want to take off her pants in front of the crew and i guess she told Mm -hmm. her director that she was like oh i don't think that the character would actually do that or all this stuff and it just i mean also i i don't envy the director's position in that situation either because that's a Mm -hmm. really trick especially on a on a like a lower budget movie that's a really really difficult position to be put in yeah for sure but it could have been handled better she's a kid i wonder too that scene i wish that I could see it like how it was staged for the theater and for the stage, because I can imagine that, you know, obviously on camera, you see a certain you you can only see so much and things are kind of far away, you know, and I feel like on the stage and in the theater, you're much up close and personal. And I can just imagine that the row of like the factory scenes and the row of sewing machines and the women sewing and the sounds and the visuals probably very striking and dynamic on stage. And I'm sure that when it gets to to that part about them taking off their clothes and showing off their stretch marks and their cellulite, that that's very impactful on stage and very dynamic, Mm -hmm. you know, in a different way than in the movie. And like, I wonder how it was handled even like for the stage and Mm -hmm. the taking off the clothes and the lead actress and, and and those pieces because it's a scene that everybody loves. It's yeah. like a standout scene for everyone. Mm-hmm. I know. I would love to see a stage production of this. I also didn't know that, I guess, Josefina Lopez opened a theater in Boyle Heights. Yes. That's... Casa 001, I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Back in 2000. On First Street. Cool. Uh, she has a restaurant also called Casa Fina. Oh, no way. On First Street in Mariachi Plaza. And then so so and Mariachi Plaza f- is featured in the movie throughout. Like you see it. Right. And uh, Anna goes on her dates in Mariachi Plaza and she walks through Mariachi Plaza to catch her oh. bus to high school. So mm-hmm. right there on First, she has her restaurant, Casa uh, Mama, Casa Fina, Casa Fina, and then the theater down the street. God. Cool. That's so cool. Yeah. So that was all that was all the behind the scenes stuff mm-hmm. I had. Um, well, yeah. So let's let's take a break and then we'll come back and discuss the story, the movie, the characters, etc. Yeah. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. Celebrating pride and the queer community all year. Queer founded, queer run, and the makers of the original boxer briefs for women. Creating sustainable size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies so you feel comfortable in your own skin. 
Tomboy X just dropped their Pride 24 collection. Obsessively fit tested for all day comfort in sizes three extra small through 6X. Visit TomboyX.com. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Take The Dress. Most people remember it as an optical illusion that went viral, asking everyone on the internet, is this dress blue and black or white and gold? But there's way more to this story than that. The dress went viral in early 2015, marking one of the last months that the internet could still be fun. It was just before Trump declared his candidacy for president and polarized and already polarized internet. It was just shy of people deciding what went viral instead of algorithms. And it was just shy of celebrities realizing that they should never, ever tweet. It's more than a character of the day. It's an entire moment in time bottled in a little, well, either blue and black or white and gold package. I'm not relitigating it again. You cannot make it. And that's just one story. We've got a million. So listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And we're back. Okay, let's get into talking about uh, the the actual what happens in the movie. I really liked. Um, I know I feel like every time we see public transportation in a movie, I get so excited. But I really like. I feel like we've covered five trillion movies where it's like New York is kind of a character. But this movie, I think, like L.A. is on is like really strutting its stuff in this one it is so beautiful and so like well done and i love that you sort of navigate the city with public transit and i just really liked it yeah yes hard agree that is again like something you don't see when you want uh, except for the iconic film speed 1992 could it have happened without the (laughs) la metro certainly Uh, not mm. But uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's so much this movie is is doing as far as representation goes, as far as just like, again, powerful messaging. Mm -hmm. You know, it's a a predominantly Latinx cast. Mm -hmm. Um, I love that Spanish is is spoken frequently among the characters, because I feel like a lot of Hollywood executives 
would cite that as a thing like that will make this movie too inaccessible Mm -hmm. for a mainstream audience but it's funny too because you already had so many like okay like we had tons of star wars movies already at this time and they're speaking all kinds of different made-up alien languages (laughs) like in those films (laughs) But Spanish is too much. That is too inaccessible. Right. Like, oh, no, a language that most people in the U.S. speak to some degree. Can't have that. Well, like, <laughs> Not that. Meanwhile, Elvish is right. uh, making a huge comeback at this same time. <laughs> All right. Because Lord, Lord of the Rings, Two Towers comes out the same year. Wow. There you go. I feel like the movie... Sometimes I feel like a movie like Real Women Have Curves, especially at this time, is almost like a crossover situation, even though it's Mexican-Americans like in L.A., like her character ostensibly is like, a, you know, first or second generation like Mexican-American. And part of why I love the, the bus conversation and the travel conversation is because there's this crossover that happens in L.A. It's this east side, west side crossover. And you see them, she's crossing the bridge via bus and via her dad's pickup truck to go from her east side neighborhood, pass through downtown to work or to end up in Beverly Hills on the west side for school or for the dad's job. And I think that's almost like the story of the movie. It's like born here on the east side. She she was taking meetings and she was on the west side, Josefina, I'm sure. A lot yeah. <laughs> trying to get this movie made. And it's like a journey that I think like if you're an L.A. local, like we joke about this, me and my co-host Diosa, because we live, I live sort of in the mid-city area, which is a little more um, west, but it's close to downtown. And Diosa lives sort of southeast. And our community is sort of here, west of La Brea and beyond. And we hear so many people like transplant saying, oh, L.A., like I never go east of La Brea. Anything east of La Brea is the east side. Downtown is the east side. Silver Lake is the east side. There's this disconnect in in what L.A. is. We've I've, we've heard this so many times. So anytime that we have to go to the west side and leave our little enclaves, mm-hmm. it's a thing. It's a journey. It's, oh, we're going to the west side. Yeah. You know, so I feel like Josefina was going to the west side. And in this movie, they travel to the west side. Ooh, it's like. Like, I mean, yeah, for for uh, listeners who do not understand truly the grand trek that Anna was taking to get to school every day, it's I was I was trying to do the math in my head. I'm like, that's at least an hour and a half if the bus comes on, yeah. on time. Because she like transfers. She like goes from like Boyle Heights to Hollywood and Vine from Hollywood and Vine to Beverly Hills. Stop. Like she's taking transfers, which is a yeah, that's uh the buses here look pro, but d- we could use some more routes. Could use some more routes. Use some more frequency, because yeah. sometimes mm-hmm. you're like, why am I doing a yo-yo act to get somewhere that is objectively three miles from where I'm sitting? Unclear. Look, right. <laughs> but but but, it, but I loved that the movie took that time to show you that journey because it feels like it effortlessly communicates the class struggle that Anna is dealing with without having to like bop you over the head with it. It's just like an effortless part of the story. I love how it mm-hmm. you're just told visually. And also like when you see that kid Jimmy <laughs> come to the east side and like <laughs> clearly it sounds like he's like one of the people you're talking about, Mala, where it's, it's he's like what 
what? Like, yeah. There's a part where he's like, because she knows him from school and he goes to school in Beverly Hills. So you can presume that he probably lives in Beverly Hills as well. He's like Cher's little brother or something. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He's Elijah Wood's son. Um, no. <laughs> he's like. He's of the Wood family for sure. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Summering with the Wood family. <laughs> He's like, I wanted to go to Europe with you. Things are just too easy here. You know, you're handed everything. You're handed school. You're handed a car. That's why I went to teach. And it's like, okay, (laughs) you're saying this to Anna, who comes from a working class, blue collar family where most of her family works in a clothing factory where their labor is for sure being exploited because they're assembling dresses for eighteen dollars, yeah, right, to be sold at the Bloomingdale's that his family probably shops at, like, right, right. And Anna takes the bus, right? She's like, "What are you talking about? I take the bus." Yeah, and he's like, "We have buses here, like, right." <laughs> what I love about that scene is like Anna doesn't say any of that. You know, she just like listens to him, mm-hmm. and she's like. Okay, sure, Jimmy. <laughs> you yeah. know, she doesn't have to. She, it's so fascinating to me. She doesn't. She doesn't feel compelled to to tell him he's wrong or that he has it easy or that her life is so hard or well. Here's what she's she's on the bus. She doesn't have a car. It's not easy for her. And I I always find those choices really fascinating. Of like how much Anna is like sharing with him mm-hmm. or not. You know, um, right? Because I think that in in and that sex scene that they have where he's like, I'll write you, I'll call you. And she's very kind of cold and says, no, like mm-hmm. for what? And she knows like this guy is for ne- for the now, but this is not, he's not my future and mm-hmm. he doesn't need to know all of me. And I think that's so interesting. Yeah. yeah. And that's just like, uh, that just like felt so real to me. And just, like, it just shows how she is a very like multidimensional complex character where you know, she has no qualms about challenging her mom, challenging her sister, you know, challenging Mrs. Glass, the owner of the clothing manufacturer. Like, but she isn't quite so challenging to some of the things that Jimmy says, because he says something like, uh, and, you know, we'll talk all about like the the body and fat shaming that right. she experiences. But he says something like, you're not fat. You're beautiful. beautiful. And you're just As like, if oh those my two God, things are Jimmy. mutually exclusive. <laughs> Jimmy. Jimmy, Jimmy, Jimmy. And she doesn't challenge that, but it's just a much more different dynamic that she has with this kid. She's this like rich white kid she's just getting to know yeah. versus her mom who she's lived her entire life with. And that just like felt like said, you know, we all kind of switch our behavior and, you know, based on who we're interacting with and and so that just like felt very familiar relatable yeah Anna's just such a cool character where every time I don't know like you, you can see even in that scene with Jimmy I really like when she was like we're not gonna have anything to talk about in three months like don't bother <laughs> blah, blah blah like that was so cool and then but in the scene right after you do see that like there is some insecurity attached to her setting that boundary in that way where she's like well you're gonna have some like skinny white girlfriend in a couple of months anyways so like why would I the subject being like why would I emotionally invest in mm-hmm. a Jimmy of, of the world and <laughs> here's my question Jimmy says that he's got into teacher's college, which leads me to believe he's enrolling at Columbia University. She gets into Columbia University. She ends up in New York. 
is there a Real Women Have Curves sequel <laughs> where she wears the red dress <gasps> in New York and they reunite somehow? Oh my god! Is that why there are loose ends? Whoa, this is becoming a what? Oh my gosh, it's becoming a to all the boys I love before style saga. Yes, yeah, it's a whole thing. I have to wonder. It's- it's not too late. Yes, it's 20 years later, but, you know. I'm still waiting for that red dress payoff. I'll be honest. Yeah. Yeah. The other thing that I thought was interesting as it relates to the kind of class commentary is Mrs. Glass. So, again, she's the owner of the dress manufacturing company that Estella is a contractor of. Mm-hmm. And there's that scene where Estella, she's, like, at first trying to write an email to her and Anna is like you gotta go down and like talk to her you're never gonna get anywhere with an email so Anna goes with her you know ends up like advocating pretty hard far more than Estella can but it's also like you know more is at stake for Estella so you don't you know you get why she's a bit intimidated by Mrs. Glass Um, but there's that moment where Mrs. Glass is like you know I, I believe a woman like me should help a woman like you, but mm. I can only help mm. you so much. And basically tells her she has to pick herself up by her bootstraps. Yeah. Because she, despite also being like a Latina woman who, you know, like saw something in Estella and like, that's why she wanted to help her out. But she's also a capitalist who is for sure exploiting Estella's labor. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You hate to see it, but that shit also does happen. It does happen. Yeah. I find the Mrs. Glass character so fascinating because that character can be open to so many interpretations. Like we can create so many storylines behind her. Like, Mm -hmm. is this like an Argentinian Latina with the last name Glass? Like, is she like a third gen, like Mexican American who like went to like Harvard business school? Like who is this woman (laughs) and how did, why is she the way that she is, you know? Right. Mm -hmm. And I love the tension there too with like, you have Anna who like went to Beverly Hills high school and is college bound and is very kind of, um, she feels like she knows a lot of things, right? And I feel mm-hmm. like there's a lot of like power trips in this movie about what we know and what we don't know. So I think Anna feels like among her family, she knows more things than like her mom. And her mom feels like, well, a woman knows and a mother knows. And that's her favorite yeah. saying, mm-hmm. you know, because she's a mom, so she knows. And she's a married woman, so she knows. And Anna went to Beverly Hills High, so she knows, <laughs> you know. And so Anna thinks Anna thinks that she's about to help her sister out and, like, negotiate with this business lady. But Anna is way in over her head. And this yeah. lady is way out of her league. And Anna's yeah. actually doing more harm than good. And she thinks she's helping, mm-hmm. you know? And so it's like, maybe there's a reason Estella has been kind of moving the way she's been moving. Because maybe Estella knows something that Anna doesn't know. Right. And, and I love all of that, that kind of merry-go-round. Mm-hmm. I don't think in my, I think I've got, I was so caught up in the Anna of it all in my like earlier viewings. Because it's like, that is like, especially if you're like a teen girl, you're plugging yourself into Anna, like end of story. I didn't think as much as I probably should have about Estella's character. And on prepping for this episode, I was like kind of blown away by how much there is in Estella's character, even though like, I mean, she's a main character, but she doesn't like actually speak that much. She doesn't take a ton of like action action or because it's so honest story and the relationship between Anna and her mother is so focused on. But I really love Estella and I don't think I like had the tools to understand 
what she was up against when I first saw this movie because mm -hmm. Anna is so headstrong and like pushes back on everything in, in a way that is like really cathartic and cool to see. And, and I think in my mind at the time, I'm like, well, why doesn't Estella stand up for herself more? And like not understanding their, the dynamic there where even watching like how, like it's clear that 10 years prior, Estella was treated the way Anna's being treated now by her mother, which is, I feel like, represented in that scene where their mom basically says, like, well, it's too late for Estella. I'm going to focus on Anna. And it seems like uh -huh. Estella has put so much energy and in, in, like, her life into pleasing her mom and doing what she thinks is the right thing and trying to, like, meet the bar that their mom is setting that no one can ever actually reach mm -hmm. yeah and then 10 years later be blamed for it and she's still not the mom's favorite right and then like 10 years later she's still catching shit for it and her mom has given up on her for no reason even though estella seems like she like yeah is I, I mean i don't know enough about how a textile factory is run to say this for sure but it seems like estella is kind of like doing the bulk of uh the day-to-day -day, yeah. um stuff she's handling all the, the the rent issues and the and the checks and like a lot of the high level stuff but is like not appreciated by the powers that be certainly but also doesn't seem it seems like she's really undervalued by her own mom yeah and just like seeing how that because that does i don't know like being estella's age and not anna's now you're like that does wear on you and of course there's just like anna has the energy to fight every battle and it's like but that mm -hmm. changes over time and yeah i just love estella and with estella she I feel like Estella's underrated too because if I knew somebody who had their own dress manufacturing business and was selling gowns to Bloomingdale's, right. like was filling orders constantly, mm -hmm. that's a big fucking deal. Like that's an accomplished seamstress, designer, like businesswoman. Like that's nothing to sneeze at. She's being exploited. It is literally a sweatshop setting. Right. But it's impressive when we really break it down and think mm -hmm. about what it sh what she's doing there. And and I don't think that Anna sees that. She's literally phantom threading. Like mm -hmm. <laughs> it's also it's like further complicated by so you can kind of imagine that Estella took up this business because that's what her mom did like right. Carmen says that she has been sewing for 38 years and she started when she was like 13 so like you have Estella like taking in her mom you know like taking after her mom what's the ex expression take something footsteps Fol uh, fo following? following following in <laughs> her mother's footsteps I was like why can't I put this sentence together it's 900 um, degrees is why <laughs> <laughs> so she's following in her mom's footsteps yeah possibly to impress her mom possibly because that's the skill her mom taught her you know there's could be any number of of reasons and um was able to open up her own factory um yeah. which i think maybe it, it seems to be implied that like that's something that carmen didn't have the opportunity or the money that you need to start your own business but it's something that estella was able to do and so she started her own business and now she employs her mom. So she's her mom's boss. And then her mom mentions how from decades of sewing, she's she's become arthritic. She can't see very well. And she's like not actually able to 
work very well because like this hard labor has has really worn on her over the years but she's ashamed by that and mm-hmm. is not really communicating that to Estella but she tells it to Anna and it's just like there's like so many such an interesting and complicated family dynamic yeah yeah there's a lot of layers and it's like you you have this situation where like the mother and the sister have dignity in their work even though it's not ideal because that is such a step like she's a business owner she is doing deals with bloomingdales and they're they have this team they're employing people right there's this scene where Carmen and Anna's father, they're talking to each other and the the father is saying she can learn a lot at Columbia. Like she's accepted. She got a scholarship. Mm -hmm. She can go get educated. And her mother says, I can educate her. I can teach her how to sew. I can teach her how to take care of children. I can teach her how to keep a house. She doesn't do laundry. She's my greatest disappointment. You know, she doesn't listen to me. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's interesting because I think there's a piece there where like the mom and the sister are like, we like our lives and we are doing work and we are supporting ourselves. And Mm -hmm. this is a dignified life that's also worth living, you know? Mm -hmm. And so there's this like divide there where she's very young and and she's pushing back on it and she's poo-pooing it, but it's what's allowed, also allowed her to go to Beverly Hills High School, you know? And she's had that familial support. So there's that push and pull there where like, in their heart of hearts, they want more for her, mm-hmm. but they know that, like, this is their world, and for her to step out of it, what does that mean about their world and them and, and all of that? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like, and and again, like, that whole message is conveyed in, like, a single scene, which is wild. Like, the, the scene when uh, Mr. Guzman comes back to the house, and I did, I know that this, like, she's wrong for this, but it did always make me laugh every time um, Carmen saw Mr. Guzman coming, and she's like, who is that? Let's get him out of here. Like, <laughs> slamming the door in George Lopez's Who's face. Who's this man? Yeah. This man looking <laughs> yeah, for Anna. Man, yeah, you're like, that's, that's her teacher. Uh, <laughs> but, but yeah, like, that whole class tension of, like, and I feel like you see it a little bit in Estella's character as well, where it's, it's not like Mr. Guzman is trying to say, like, one thing is more valuable than the other but i think like his perspective is like well you sent her to this like bougie high school do you want her to have access to what the bougie high school was supposed to have gotten her access to and then from where carmen and estella are sitting and from where the whole family is sitting it makes total sense to be like well why are you telling us that the life that we have isn't enough like Mm -hmm. it feels like anna is the only person in the room at any given time who understands that um, and like understands both sides of it and we don't I guess we don't know enough about Mr. Guzman's background maybe he does understand this tension and his power is just kind of very limited in this situation because you're totally right Marla like it's so wild the way that Estella is treated and like the circumstances she has to work under because she's also I liked that you have that detail of she's a brilliant designer and like I hope that you know in the inevitable uh you know real women have curves to return of the red dress the reboot um <laughs> she ha- an extremely curvy movie yeah yeah, yeah. Extreme- <laughs> she has like uh, her own like fashion house or like something like that where yes like she's so talented but it's like she's got an ig boutique 
Right, exactly. Mm-hmm. It is like doing expensive <laughs> custom red carpet looks. Yes. For America Ferrera question mark. Um <laughs> but and then the movie explodes. Um but <laughs> but I I thought it was interesting how like there's those moments with Estella the moments I liked most between Anna and Estella were when Estella I think would sometimes internalize how various systems were failing her and her business as individual failures, which is, you know, how the systems want you to feel. And I, mm-hmm. I feel like, you know, even though the Mrs. Glass thing did not pan out and was that was kind of naive on Anna's part to think you could just march in and right. change a girl boss's mind. Um, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but like Estella it seems like had internalized a lot of shame about it. And like, she wasn't able to talk to people about it. And you would imagine if she went to Carmen about it, Carmen would give her shit about it. Cause that is right. very inherent to how Carmen treats her daughters. And just like watching Estella, this like brilliant business owner who should be, you know, in Milan <laughs> or whatever, like mm-hmm. having to internalize this, bullshit is Mm -hmm. it's I don't know it's like pretty subtle in the way that it's like telegraphed in the movie but I just Mm -hmm. I don't know it just felt like this whole other element to what's going on in her life that I didn't take a lot of note on because I was America Ferrera built (laughs) and just didn't understand the, the world as well yeah, absolutely. And yet there's still so much to love about Anna's character, oh, too, yes. where, like, so we've been kind of dancing around the mother-daughter relationship throughout the entire mm-hmm. discussion. So so let's just get into it. It's a complicated relationship. It's clear that Carmen very much loves and cares for her daughter and is coming from a place where she thinks what she's doing, what she's saying is what's best for her daughter. She's not really doing anything out of like spite or malice. It's just, this is what she knows and she's trying to pass it along to her daughter. And it's what she thinks is best for Anna. Mm. This often manifests as Carmen policing Anna's body in two pretty major ways. One is her size and the other is her sexuality. Mm -hmm. And this is obviously informed by Carmen's religious beliefs and her kind of cultural like you know yes she is reinforcing a lot of patriarchal standards that were pretty par for the course for her generation her culture Anna is from a younger more progressive generation she grew up in a different country and culture from her parents and this has kind of empowered her to push back against like her mom's ideology because we constantly see that kind of tug of war of Carmen either fat shaming or slut shaming Mm -hmm. Anna and then Anna challenging it absolutely so again we have like Carmen constantly making comments about Anna's weight her size she says things like you know you would look beautiful if you lost weight and constant comments about her body Mm -hmm. yeah and then you have Anna again constantly challenging this and pushing back and saying things like well I happen to like myself and yeah maybe I do want to lose weight but part of me doesn't because my weight says to everybody fuck you and she says you know how dare anybody try to tell me what I should look like or what I should be when there's so much more to me than just my weight Mm -hmm. and that's such a wonderful thing to be in a movie that is targeted to uh, I mean 
everyone, everyone should watch this movie. Yeah. yeah. But it's like targeted to probably a younger audience, um, you know, mm-hmm. teens, tweens. Mm-hmm. So you have like this young character who's like advocating for herself and pushing back against this like harmful ideology of, mm-hmm. of fat shaming and body shaming. I've been watching Dance Moms and Abby Lee Miller has sort of helped me to better understand Carmen's character because interesting Abby Lee, whoa yes because <laughs> abby lee is known for her harsh words and teaching tactics with her students but her students also win like they sweep right mm-hmm. and so abby lee at one of her competitions was like listen i tell you the harsh truth in rehearsal because i don't want to put you on a stage and parents and other coaches are saying nasty things about your technique and your unpointed feet in the audience and you're getting dinged I'm saying it so you fix it and other people are not saying it and humiliating you. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there are some older women and I know for a fact Latina mothers because my mother kind of is of this sort of mindset sometimes like, Mm -hmm. well, I'm your mother and if I don't tell you, who's going to tell you? And I feel like Carmen has this sort of very like she likes to tell cautionary tales. Like if you don't listen to your mother, this is what's going to happen yeah. to you. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you because I'm your mother. Like there's that one scene where they're watching that novella <laughs> and I love this title, <laughs> Los Pobres Lloran Más. <laughs> and the girl like it doesn't listen to her mom and gets decapitated in the process trying to run off with some guy. God, and Carmen so is good. like that's that's what happens. That's what happens when you don't listen to your mother. A mother knows the right man for her daughter, you know? So it's mm-hmm. like, for me, that's who Carmen is. Meanwhile, like, poor Anna's trying to write her college essay at the table. She's like, stop! <laughs> like... <laughs> the decapitation comes up, like, mid-essay writing. Yeah. <laughs> oh, it's perfect. And then mm. there's also this um, this undercurrent throughout the movie that these women in the factory are making dresses that they can't fit into because glamorous clothing is often not manufactured for larger bodies because you have pancha saying talking about a dress that estella is designing and she says something like yeah i would definitely wear that if it would fit me mm-hmm. parentheses mm-hmm. it wouldn't or like you, you i couldn't probably find a dress that would fit me like this but that's why um, in real women have curves too estella is the most yeah. famous inclusive designer in the entire yeah, world like exactly this. she's styling lizzo yes she's styling yes. everybody uh. <laughs> yeah the, the script writes itself honestly <laughs> Yeah, we don't we don't need Lavu this time. <laughs> yeah, Just get him out of there. <laughs> yeah, Lavu more like it. <laughs> more like Lapu. Wow, um, Caitlin, that was too far. No I'm kidding. <laughs> Um, And then that really sweet scene where you see Estella giving the dress that she made for Anna. And she says, like, I cut this specifically for your body and says, like, pretty dresses aren't just for skinny girls. And it's just such a beautiful little, like, button on that through line of the movie. Yeah. The dresses are such a double, a triple whammy because it's like, it costs these women money to make these dresses practically. Like, not only can they not fit in the dresses they're making, but they can't afford the dresses they're making because they cost $600. Mm -hmm. And the constant throughout the film is, I don't think we ever see the women really get paid, you know, until the very end. 
they reimburse the dad mm-hmm. because of the loan. Right. The the landlord is coming because she's late on rent. Like the dress is actually even just to work is like costing them, mm-hmm. and it's wild to to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made me so sad. Like, and it made me. I felt like a moment of like frustration with Estella. I was like, oh, but then it's like, but she's being put in an impossible position. It's just. And and I I feel like it the movie I guess in that moment did kind of telegraph clearly why Estella feels like this is all her fault because she's the one that has to tell her employees I can't pay you even though you're doing really really hard work like mm-hmm. all the time and I won't turn a fan on because of dust like it's <laughs> of course she feels terrible but it's like but yeah I don't know the. This viewing, I was Estella pilled on this one. Um, and the the thing about the movie too is like that. Ah, there's so much, so many questions because Anna goes off to New York. She's strutting her stuff, mm-hmm. but remember, like Estella stayed behind because she had to go to the factory. Like the factory continues. The debt mm-hmm. is still right. there. Like the turnover. That's all still that's still going on while Anna's in New York. Right. At least Estella gets her own bedroom now because they I were know. sharing a bedroom. So yeah. true. <laughs> that is She deserves. She deserves. Yeah, she deserves I mean she deserves her own place. We, like I, I wanted to get back to mom a, a little bit as well cuz I I really do think it's like uh it it's such a tricky Role. I feel like it is such a testament to Lupe Ontiveros for making Carmen a lovable character. And like, because I feel like on paper, it's tough. The things she says to her daughters can be so cutting and awful. And the fact that she is able to get across, like, I do believe that she loves her daughters. Mm-hmm. But there's all these layers of, and I know that there's there's so many, oh, there's another fire. Um, oh no! Uh, I know there's so many l- layers of what Carmen is kind of projecting onto her daughters. It's a lot of cultural values that she grew up with. It's a generational value. It's uh, it's internalized shame being projected back onto her kids. And mm-hmm. there was an element of it. The closest I could get to like relating to outside of like just being body shamed by female relatives, which happened in my family brutally and all the time but it almost felt like there is like this part of Carmen that wants her daughters to suffer in the same exact ways she did and like to not mm-hmm. suffer in those it almost reminds me of like when like it, with this whole student loan forgiveness debate where people are like yeah. well I had to be in extreme debt for 20 years so my kids should too and it's like no that doesn't don't no <laughs> What? No. Yeah. But but on a human level, you can understand how, you know, she, I mean, Carmen has had to deal with shit her entire life and she was raised a very particular way. And you understand how she got to where she is in the way she views the world and also be like, but you have to let your daughters, you know, y- you've got to want more for your kids. You've got to want them to be able to go their own way. And it's such a d- difficult relationship to see play out because you you I don't know you feel so much for everybody but sometimes you just want to be like Carmen come on mm-hmm. yeah there's there's a piece too where it's like Carmen she is harsh and she can be mean there's this really interesting layer there though where it's like sometimes like 
Mexican families do speak that way to each other and it can come off as harsh and mean, but it's not unbelievable and it's not unrealistic. Right. And mm-hmm. and I feel like sometimes like, oh, it's almost like you actually can't body shame like a Latina because our families have already been doing it for years. Like we've been hearing this stuff for, for our whole lives. Like people speak about our bodies in very public and specific terms like your body part isn't just the body part it becomes like a stand-in for your whole identity like we have words just to refer to you in relation to a body part like if you have a big butt you don't just have a big butt you are a nalgona like that can be your nickname like if you have big chichis you can be a chichona like that's your nickname that's your title you know gordita she calls her throughout this is and i love the caption the translation because she goes this is my gordita right here and it's a this is my fatty right here right (sighs) my butterball butterball also in the captions but these are actual terms that people actually call girls and women like irl Mm. and so is it uncomfortable yeah are they sometimes terms of endearment yeah are they sometimes kind of cutesy names yeah Mm -hmm. but can they also be used like to cut also yes so there's also like that sort of like very subtle like line that i love that josefina plays with with her writing yeah Mm -hmm. and it it works so well yeah and then (laughs) again the other thing that carmen tends to do with anna it mostly well part so it's like Carmen has this idea that, you know, a woman has to save herself, quote unquote, till marriage. She can't have sex until she's married. And it's also her duty to get married and start raising a family and to take care of that family and to take care of her husband. Mm. And she wants Anna to get married as soon as possible. And, you know, she has that little, the figurine of, of San, uh, I forget which saint Antonio, it is. Saint Anthony, I yeah. think. <laughs> So, you know, she's holding out, she's like, and she's like, I've, I've lost hope that Estella will get married, but now, so now I have to really focus on this future for Anna. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of where she's coming from as far as like Anna's like sexuality and like her expectations of what Anna is going to do mm-hmm. with like starting a family and that kind of stuff. Anna does not buy into this. She's just like, I'm going to like start dating this kid, Jimmy for the summer. She wants to have sex with him. She tells him, you know, I feel ready. She has sex on her terms, which is, I think is an amazing thing to show on screen yeah. of like, you know, a, a young woman feeling ready to have sex for the first time. Expresses and the condom scene condom. The condom. Yeah. that she buys a condom. Yeah. Everything is on her terms. You know, she gives consent. Like, this this is all, like, loved it to see on screen. That actual sex scene when, you know, she's, like, she turns the lights back on. She's, like, I want you to see my body. This is what I look like. Mm-hmm. That whole thing I thought was handled so beautifully. Yeah. And, and I don't think it's, like, an active protest against her mom's ideology. But it's just, like, what she wants to do. And it's, like, what she's doing despite it not wanting what her mother wants for her and Anna pushes back on this and says why is a woman's virginity the only thing that matters a woman has thoughts ideas a mind of her own and so Anna is like constantly advocating for like I'm more than my weight I'm more than my size I'm more than my virginity you know and it's just like a feminist icon 18 year old Anna and America Ferrera like performs the hell out of those speeches I like it's 
so good. Yeah, I, I, I really, and I liked that. I feel like a lesser movie. I don't know. Like this is such a case study for like women, like writing and directing stories about women, especially with the amount of specificity that Josefina Lopez does. Like it just works. Like it's amazing, and mm-hmm. I feel like a lesser story would have because i was just like okay other teen movie analogs you see that like in a lesser movie and a lesser story anna would have been like oh this boy thinks i'm beautiful so i'm in love with him now and like all this stuff Mm -hmm. but she like is very in charge of her sexuality she's i i loved that they went out of the way to be like and she made sure that she was safe she protected herself because who knows what's mm-hmm. going on with this kid jimmy but also doesn't know how condoms work which is very mm-hmm. true of 17 mm-hmm. year olds um <laughs> and that when she was done she was like you know i i don't want this to be a relationship i feel like teen movies so often put young women in the situation of like the first boy that is nice to me or finds me attractive or like sees me for who like the whatever walking down the stairs moment what's that movie that i hate she's all that yes like the first (laughs) the first boy that sees me for who i really am is the love of my life and blah 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 and anna's like i live in the real world i don't want (laughs) to keep seeing you and like it's just such a that happens nowhere like it was just so cool to see Mm -hmm. her take charge of everything yeah i love too that the the movie manages to be very dramatic hilarious Mm -hmm. hilarious but also very dramatic and nothing that dramatic happens plot wise like she graduates high school dates a boy and goes to college you know like and like works with her family for the summer (laughs) like (laughs) It feels so cinematic, though. You know, very wholesome, but there's... It's so cinematic, and that's, for me, is the, you know, she doesn't get pregnant, she doesn't go to jail, no one dies of an overdose, like, there's no stabbings, like, but drama. And that's the brilliance of the movie and the writing. Like, that's the storytelling, because you're captivated, and you're, like, feeling feelings and going through it with her. And I feel like... That is the drama of teen angst. Mm -hmm. That's how heightened it can be. She's just being a teen girl going the fuck through it and clashing with her mom. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know? Yeah. The movie doesn't take any shortcuts when it comes to like, this is a dramatic story. So someone has to die. Or, you know, like, it's just like life is dramatic. Yeah. And hilarious. Yeah. And the movie balances both very well. It's so good. Yeah, it's I, Mwah, chef's so kiss. Like, Molly, you said it perfectly where you're like, yeah, like teen girl life is everything feels like a movie. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Everything is. Teen angst, angst. And so this is, I think, just in that vein. Yeah, teen girls, you know, struggle. They're in the trenches. It's hard. They're in the trenches 24-7. It's Truly. If you're a teen girl listening, I salute you. It does get better eventually. In a, it, it will better. eventually, eventually. Just hold on. And it, another thing, that I feel like I just was so impressed and like blown away by the writing of like, there's no character, however small, that, that you don't have some level of investment in because the script goes out of its way to like, you know, at least something about every woman who works with Estella like you get to know them over the course of the movie Mm -hmm. even like in I think again in like a less thoughtfully written movie it would just be like 
background seamstress number four, but that role like doesn't exist. You learn everyone's name, you learn a little bit about them, or at least get a taste of their personality. And I feel like that just makes the payoff of this, like it could have been a like I am Spartacus moment where you're like, this is kind of cool, but who are these people? Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know who, th- who these women are and you ha- already have gotten to know like a little bit of their history and their relationship with their coworkers throughout the movie. And so it feels like, oh, I'm in a room full of women whose lives I know something about. And now they're finally comfortable talking about their their bodies and their insecurities and their like everything. And it just felt so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, like the attention to detail is is so awesome. Absolutely. Ooh, uh, do <laughs> what else? What else we got going on? Sorry, I feel like I just blacked out for a second because I inhaled. It's, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> it's so hot. Some hot it's air. Of air. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I want to share one last quote from the creator of this property Josefina Lopez so the play seems to be a bit more focused on the on a character being undocumented for some portion of her life and the anxiety about being undocumented and being deported and that is a focus on the play that is eliminated from the movie so this quote this quote is a little bit about Josefina talking about being undocumented Mm -hmm. just to put that into context But Josefina says, quote, I was undocumented for 13 years. I wanted to write a play to affirm my humanity because I felt so dehumanized being undocumented. I've always had issues with my weight. And one of my teachers told me, not in a mean way, she thought I was a great actress, that I had the ability to play Juliet and Lady Macbeth, but no one was going to cast me as the ingenue if I didn't lose weight because only thin girls get the lead. Men write roles and direct the movies, so I had to adhere to those standards. Otherwise, I'd always play the side character. I thought, okay, if I lose the weight, then I'm going to be told by casting people that I should change my name to a white name, change my hair color. If I do this, I'm going to have to give up who I am to be an actress. I refused to do that. The problem isn't that I'm undocumented, Mexican, working class, or overweight. The problem is society." Unquote. She's the and that True. sentiment feels like it, it comes through in this movie very well and that that's like the core of what so much of this movie is about and mm-hmm. it's just such a positive thing for that to be out in the world I hell yeah that's such a nice quote she's yeah. so cool mm-hmm. the last thing I had this is not a, a criticism it was just something that I is something we've talked about on the show before and so I wanted to sort of see what y'all felt about it I really love that this movie puts mother-daughter relationships front and center and gives them precedence. Mm-hmm. We get a few scenes with their father, who seems to be a very nice, <laughs> affable kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, real nice guy. Right. <laughs> like, but as is their grandfather, I just feel like, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I'm, I don't even think that I would want anything to be changed. I just think that there are moments in movies that center around mothers and daughters where it's like the the dad is always like the quote-unquote nicer guy it just felt like 
a little I was like, yeah. okay, so well, dad when dads are mean, they're scary. <laughs> like we're getting we're getting into scary territory with mean dad. <laughs> right. So it's like yeah. all all the kind of baggage is rolled into Carmen and it just like I don't know. I mean, I didn't really feel strongly about it. I just always feel like I noticed when there's a lot of movies where it's like the dad is quote unquote the nice parent. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that yes, and that that certainly is a trope that we've discussed to a, a large extent on the show, but I think it all depends on how the movie approaches it and yeah. how the movie actually handles it. In this movie, it didn't feel tropey. It didn't feel like it was leaning into stereotypes about uh a mom being right what is the word i'm searching for because she's like so i mean carmen is so like contextualized and well written and like Mm -hmm. you understand yeah why she reacts the way she does right there's there's all these shows like there's like i think of like the mom on like malcolm in the middle then there's like um everybody loves raymond the white deborah and i love all these (laughs) characters all these women What's the other one? But there's a bunch, right? Like where like the mom is, oh, uh, my wife and kids. The dad is like funny goofball. Mm. And then the mom's kind of kind of a bitch, kind of strict, always yelling, high strung. Like he's always doing stupid things to stress her out. And I feel like in this film, like Carmen is like an anti-hero. Yeah. Yes. We (laughs) can't stand her. And she sometimes because of the things she says, but we still love her. Mm -hmm. And I also feel like I love that Anna's character is allowed to be kind of a brat. Like Carmen's kind Mm -hmm. of a bitch and Anna's kind of a brat. And as much as they insist that they are different, the more we see their similarities. And I feel like it's so interesting the way she pits them against each other. But it's like, oh, we're learning more about each one of them because they're the same person, you know? It is like another thing where it's like, I want to see, man, I feel like we're making a strong case for a sequel. I want to see what this <laughs> relationship between them looks like 20 years down the line. Like, mm-hmm. because I, I do understand, like, they're, her parent. I mean, there's so much anxiety around... Anna leaving to go to college, especially across the country. And like, I feel like there's a subtext to like, she's going to change. She's going to like not be the girl that we raised and like she'll lose touch with who she is if she leaves. And I would love to see that relationship examined 20 years down. <sighs> yes. My last observation is so there is another movie about like a young woman who has just graduated from high school who ha- who lives in California and has a difficult relationship with her mother. She dates a boy and has sex for the first time and then she goes off to college across the country. I also think in New York City and that movie is Lady Bird. Wow. There's a lot of parallels here. Interesting. Yeah. And Lady Bird's kind of a brat. And yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And like a lot of body stuff with the mom as well. Body stuff. You know, cl- there's class commentary in that movie mm-hmm. as well. Very similar movies. Interesting. I would yeah. say if you like Lady Bird, for sure check out Real Women Have Curves. If you haven't seen it, I think that mm-hmm. Real Women Have Curves does it better. I find it <laughs> to be a more 15 years movie. earlier. Yeah. 50, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, wow, I didn't make that connection. Yeah, totally. So yeah, if you liked Lady Bird, definitely check out Real Women Have Curves if you haven't seen it. 
uh, sorry, I got caught up in my own horrible Lady Bird joke, which is instead of that boy Jimmy, Lady Bird vo- has that boy Timmy. Timmy oh, Chalamet. Timmy Chalamet? Yes, Timmy <laughs> Chalamet, most hilarious joke of all time. <laughs> and on that, no, there's actually no good way to transition this. But I mean, talking about Timothy Chalamet, I do think passes the Bechdel test, if that's where I you were feel going. Like- I don't know. What is he like? You know, like this. It, can we? Mm, good question. Can we really vouch for him? I feel like it's still kind of a mystery. It eludes me. Mm-hmm. But you know, it doesn't elude me whether this movie passes the Bechdel test or not. <laughs> yes, we did it. Woo! This movie super passes the Bechdel test. It's barely even worth discussing because it passes between almost any pairing of characters mm-hmm. that aren't men i i like we discussed before um this movie does uh takes a lot of care to give every character in the movie particularly the women uh a name and some information mm-hmm. about them mm-hmm. so really any interaction happening at the factory that isn't explicitly about marriage passes the Bechdel test they're talking about their bodies they're talking about school they're talking about work they're talking about deadlines mm-hmm. they're talking about taxes they're talking about they're just uh, you know dare I say it being full-on people and characters <laughs> the whole damn movie yup and as we also um, touched on in the episode this movie is has just so much focus on the female characters and the relationships between female characters and while mm-hmm. there are you know there's a dad there's the grandpa there's a couple male cousins those characters are like pretty secondary or tertiary and it's really right. so much of a focus on the women and their relationships so still depicted with love it's not like they're like yeah. left by the wayside but like <laughs> but you know like but yes, it is It is yeah. a women's movie and, um, you know, a, a women that we don't usually get focused on. Mm-hmm. Women who are working class, women who are immigrants, women who are people of color and, and Latinx specifically. So it's just, mm-hmm. th- this movie's doing so much that no other movie of its time is doing and still most movies now are not doing. So yes. with that in mind, uh, another perfect transition is coming. Do you mean the nipple scale? Yes, the only perfect metric. <laughs> and it is, of course, a scale of zero to five nipples based on examining the movie through an intersectional feminist lens. So... You know, given all possible factors to consider every potential factor one might consider um Mm -hmm. with regards to this movie and this rating i would give it a four hell yeah yeah i think i mean i would go like four four and a half it's i I was really Mm -hmm. happy to see like especially i mean just the fact that like women wrote and directed and produced this and like yeah most of them were women of color like that i feel like I mean, yeah, still unheard of now. And it's still and it's a classic like you can't. Yeah, it's uh, I feel like real women have curves kind of yet to be topped, except by real women have curves too, coming out next year. <laughs> yes. Pending. And then and then we also, um, you know, bequeath you the power to gift your four nipples to any character, person, actor, <laughs> production person of your choice. Um, you can distribute in pairs or not, you know, like kind of uh, okay. get creative with it. Oh, this is so difficult because I want to give two each to just America and Lupe, mm-hmm. you know, just split them up half and half. But I also want to give Josefina two but i only have four you know what i'm gonna give lupe ontiveros 
two because she passed away. R.I.P. I'm going to give Josefina Lopez two mm-hmm. because she wrote it. She's an icon. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give America Ferrera one because she's the youngest and I think is still working on icon status. <laughs> That's how we'll do it. I think that that was very judicious of you. I <laughs> think that was very <laughs> diplomatic. Thank you. I'm going to go four and a half and I'm going to dock it the half nipple just for um, making America Ferrer uncomfortable when she was 17. Mm. She is a living legend and a child. And I'm, you know, going to I'm going to put that one on LeVu. No nipples for LeVu for me. Zero. But outside of that, I, I think this movie is so fucking awesome. And it. I mean, it was doing so many things no other movies were doing. Josefina Lopez is an incredible writer, and I just love every element of this movie, and I'm now an Estella stand for life. Hell yeah. So I'll, I'll give one nipple to Anna, one to Estella. I'll give the half to Carmen because she's doing her best. Yeah. And I, I, I have I have love for her. Yeah. <laughs> but leave Anna and Estella alone. Um, I'll <laughs> give one to Pancha. I loved Pancha. I feel like super underrated character. Yeah. And I will give one to... I should give one to Josefina Lopez, but I'm going to give it to Josefina Lopez playing the manager of the burger joint so because um, that is acting. Scene stealer. <laughs> Scene stealer. Exactly. Where was a major Oscar snub that year? <laughs> oh, and then the last thing I wanted to say was, I guess as of last year, there's a musical being <gasps> written around this so no way hopefully people are listening to this episode from the future and just saw real women have curves on broadway i feel like this would be such a good musical hell yeah i love musicals um and i love musical adaptations that aren't uh, already disney movies so this <laughs> seems like something i would love yep caitlin uh what is your rating for this flim Ooh. This flim gets, I would say, four and a half. Mm-hmm. I was going to give it a five before I knew about the the sketchy things that were happening, especially in that one in that one particular scene mm-hmm. where America Ferreira expressed discomfort and then they deceived her with like <laughs> yucky. But um, yeah. aside from that, this is such a wonderful movie. Again, a focus on women, women's stories, women's relationships positive latinx representation that we so rarely see in cinema especially in in this era messages of body positivity of sex positivity a focus on a working class family in los angeles a side of los angeles that we don't tend to see or that tends to be um, demonized in in most media Mm -hmm. multi-generational which i feel like we haven't like explicitly Mm -hmm. but like there's just there's so much and so much is accomplished so effortlessly, so effortlessly. Oh my gosh, I'm so <laughs> bad at that word. I feel I, like everyone <laughs> has those words. It takes a lot of effort for me to say effortlessly. Wow. There we go. Think. It makes you think. <laughs> um, so much is accomplished in a movie that is less than an hour and a half. Which we were texting about every movie should be less than an hour and a half long. Yeah. If this movie can do what it does in an hour and a half, what's your excuse? I was about to say something flippant, annoying, and... What's your excuse, Titanic? <gasps> okay, now that's... 
straight up. That's slander. the one exception. Yeah, I know, I know, I know, I know, I know. I'm so sorry, everyone. Uh, who are you giving your nipples to? Um, I'm going to give my nipples to one to America Ferreira, mm-hmm. one to Lupe Ontiveros, mm-hmm. one to Ingrid Oliu, who plays Estella. I'll give one to the women who work in the clothing factory, mm-hmm. and then my half nipple I will give to Los Angeles public transportation because it needs it's called the metro prius owner (laughs) wow but i mean generically told on yourself (laughs) it is public transportation it is and i do take it sometimes brave okay (laughs) bravely occasional red line user wow i love to bully people who don't use enough public (laughs) transportation but that said you drove me to the beach yesterday so it makes you think (laughs) it does it does indeed uh right so um that is real women have curves mala thank you so much for being here and uh yeah where can we find you online plug away yes so i am on all social platforms at mala underscore munoz m-u-n-o-z is the last name and uh, you can listen to i have two podcasts out one is called locatora radio which is uh the flagship podcast that i co-host with my co-producer diosa and then my solo show, Marijuanera, a podcast for potheads. And we're on Apple, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, all the usual places. Hell yeah. Also, your stand-up fucking rules. Thank you um, so much. Yes. And then you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Bechtelcast. You it. can subscribe to our Matreon at patreon.com slash Bechtelcast, which gives you two bonus episodes every month along with access to the back catalog of over 100 bonus episodes. All bangers. And that is all for $5 a month. Oh, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Barely. It's actually, sometimes I do reflect on the value and just I'm like, wow, what a deal. What a steal. (laughs) Where are we? Okay. uh, You can also get our merch at tpublic.com slash the Bechdel cast if you are so inclined. And with that, um, I mean, I think we should mention we've been shirtless this, yeah. for the last half of the episode. I mean, am I going to put my clothes back on? We'll see. Carmen, deal with it. <laughs> All right. Bye. Bye. Happy Pride from Tomboy X. We just dropped our Pride 24 collection. Queer founded, queer run, and creating size and gender inclusive underwear, swimwear, and loungewear for all bodies. So you feel comfortable in your own skin. Visit TomboyX.com to shop. Psst. There's a shortcut to platinum status at Shell. To saving 10 cents per gallon on every fill every day. Just fill up six times with Shell V-Power Nitro Plus Premium Gasoline and it's yours. Plus, you'll rejuvenate your engine. Get ready to level up performance, rewards, and savings. With continuous use in gasoline direct injection engine fuel injectors, platinum status is earned with 12 fill-ups over three months, 10-gallon minimum per fill-up at participating Shell locations. Terms apply. Visit fuelrewards.com status. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.